today on Ag News Daily. And so what this greenhouse theoretically can allow us to do is put a, a GMO crop next to a non-GMO crop um, where they'd be identical except for that transgene, that one one or a few genes, and monitor that plant in real time to see like at every step of growth is the plant the same. Good morning, listeners. This episode is brought to you by BASF, helping farmers do the biggest job on earth. Tanner Winterhoff joined by Delaney Howell. We are November 8th, which is Tuesday. How you doing, Delaney? It's also election day, Tanner. Ah, uh, yes. Have you voted already or are you a vote on the day person? Yeah, I haven't voted yet, so I'll have to vote today. Ah, you know, it's the headline I didn't plan on reporting, but I did see last night that early voters numbers were down. Mm. So I wonder what type of if that's just more people want to vote on the day or if we'll have lower voter turnout. Yeah, I don't know this one. I mean, obviously, this one isn't maybe as important as the presidential election, or I think people think that. I think that's a perception. Absolutely. I, you know, a lot of people would argue that every election is important, but I do think the overall opinion is if it's not for president, it might, it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal, Tanner, when it comes to the farm bill, the next farm bill, because the midterm elections are really critical to to establish whether the how the uh republican party or the democratic party control the house and the senate which of course trickle down into the leadership of what happens when it comes to the farm bill the ag committee as well as the budget committee as they write the new farm bill so a lot of washington insiders and analysts are suggesting that there's going to be a shift in power happening from this election tanner yeah, and it will be interesting to continue to report on the farm bill progress once we get through the election time period because it has such such a major impact on agriculture and the economy, especially trying to balance out some of those roles. So I'm going to start off with a couple of quick hit headlines. Headlines are the $1.9 billion Powerball jackpot Delaney. The drawing was delayed over a security hitch. One of the 48 lotteries, so one of the 48 states that participates did not have their purchases turned in. So they are taking this process very seriously and will prevent numbers from being drawn until all security measures have been processed. So if you're holding a ticket, you still have to wait as of 7.30 this morning. Also, it looks like there are some experts, I'm using air quotes as I sit here since you can't see me, experts stating that we could see diesel fuel prices climb high. I look forward to an interview here as we try to get something lined up with someone tight to the diesel industry to see what supplies look like going forward. But a lot of people are calling diesel stocks to rise. Delaney, and my last little quick hit headline to get started off with is Hydro-Quebec, a Canadian energy provider, is proposing to stop providing electricity for the blockchain industry. So those that aren't familiar with blockchain, that is what you would consider the cryptocurrency or the crypto world. And a lot of the mining for that currency is driven by electricity and modems as well as servers. So the Hydro-Quebec energy supplier says that in the province of Quebec, Canada, they have proposed to stop providing electricity to the blockchain industry, a battle to 
subside the overgrowing power demand. So the utility company is doing this the first as reported, and we'll see if it continues to trickle down to other parts of Canada and the United States, Delaney. But some other energy-related news, Tanner. Turkey has started paying for some gasoline in Russian rubles. A lot of Western countries put sanctions on, of course, Russian energy. And Turkey is one of the first countries now to start to import gas once again, but also pay for them with Russian rubles. Uh, Russia has really been trying to encourage some of their trading partners to pay for their product in rubles to help bolster their currency because most energy deals are typically settled in U.S. dollars or euros, Tanner. So Turkey has been one of the first here, which should, like I said, help bolster the Russian ruble and Russian economy. Uh, But Turkey is also trying to boost their trade using their domestic currency, the lira, which was hammered by some unorthodox monetary policies. But just one of many countries that could potentially start to do business with Russia as we start to head into this, maybe not energy crisis yet, but looming energy crisis, Tanner. Yeah, I also saw a quick headline that the Vietnamese residents are struggling to get fuel for their motor vehicles as gas stations have run out there. But let's talk weather here quickly. Florida is bracing for tropical threat. Nicole, just a couple weeks after Hurricane Ian hit their shores, Disney is in a state of emergency. The <clears throat> Florida governor has stated that 34 of Florida's 67 counties are now in a state of emergency. The National Weather Service has warned that Nicole could be as strong as a hurricane when it arrives to eastern Florida late Wednesday. The storm could impact election week, as we've talked about, hopefully after voters are able to make it to their polls. But it is just north of the Bahamas now. While the storm at this time is not considered a hurricane, Florida governors urging Florida residents to take shelter. Florida Power and Light has urged customers to prepare for, again, severe power outages, and they have activated its emergency response plan. This does call more electrical workers to the state. If you look at the tracker, right now it is having 45-mile-per-hour sustained winds. It's only moving at 9 miles per hour, Delaney, and that's the biggest issue as it is a slow-moving tropical storm. So once it hits land, it could bring a substantial amount of rainfall to the eastern coast as it hits Florida and the track projected is right up along those coastal states. How would you like to be at Disneyland when a hurricane hit? Well, I uh, I don't think that would be enjoyable, especially if you were anywhere. But uh, you would think the ground floor would be safe. But then if you have storm surges, you could be sitting in water uh that would not make it the most magical place no that's true that's true it would not make it the most magical place on earth tanner i want to take a quick pause let's take a quick pause here to take a quick message from basf our sponsors today crop disease is present weeks before it can be seen with the naked eye which means the wait and see spray approach you've always taken when scouting your fields is waiting too long but veltima fungicides proven plant health benefits and revolutionary application flexibility improves yield potential even in the absence of disease every bushel counts so make sure you get everything you deserve this season with veltima fungicides from basf always read and follow label directions 
Tanner, jumping into some back into some news here, got some other Russian related and Ukrainian news here. Just a couple quick hits I'm going to go through here quickly. Uh, Sovcon estimates, which is, of course, kind of like Russia's USDA, has now raised exports for winter wheat. Russia exported about 4.3 million metric tons of wheat in October, the first month of their 22-23 shipments, which exceeded year levels or levels a year earlier. As a result, the firm raised their estimates for the 22-23 marketing year to about 300 metric million metric tons. Excuse me, they raised them by 300,000 metric tons to 43.7 million metric tons. Tanner, on the same note here, Ukraine is moving right along as 90% of their winter grain has been seeded. They've now completed about 90% of their 4.3 million hectares of planting. This includes about 3.6 million acres of, or excuse me, hectares of winter wheat and a few other crops like barley and rye. But all in all, they have seeded around 6.1 million hectares of winter wheat for the 2022 harvest, but a large area has been occupied by Russian forces since February, leading to only about 4.6 million hectares have been harvested. Well, Delaney, that actually follows pretty close in line with the United States and American farmers. Winter wheat planting progress here is at 92% planted as of Sunday. That is a little bit ahead of the five-year average, which was at 90. Crop development says 73% has emerged as of Sunday, and conditions went up 2% in the good to excellent rating from 28 to 30. So still not a very high number, Delaney, but it is going in the right direction here in the United States. Corn harvest progress was 87% completed. That was up 11 percentage points. Soybean harvest is at 94%, so only six percentage points away from being done that is now eight points ahead of last year illinois soybean harvest is at 94 percent iowa is at 97 so the i states here are about ready to wrap up soybean harvest yeah they certainly are and alongside of this report yesterday tanner the usda also released their 10-year baseline numbers yesterday of note, were there 2023 acre estimates already that they projected here? USDA estimates that weaker wheat acres will increase by 2 million acres in 2023. And if realized, the U.S. has the potential to increase ending stocks year over year for the first time in over five years for wheat. Since 2016-17, acres have been declining to levels that even with trendline yields, show declining ending stocks year over year. So this really could be the first year we see that trend change. The USDA also said they see corn stocks rising to 1.7 billion bushels next year and estimate to see 92 million acres of corn planted in 2023 with an average yield of a 181.5 and a baseline corn Price of about five dollars or lower is what they're expecting. Average corn prices, maybe they're saying about four thirty for next year. So, might need to consider making some sales early, Tanner, if that is actually realized. Right, if that projection does come into place. Remember, listeners, HPPD resistant weeds are on the rise and marching toward a field near you. But your cornfield doesn't need to be a battlefield. There's another way to defeat these weeds. Switch tactics with 
Verdict Herbicide, powered by Kixor Herbicide Technology. As a non-HPPD corn preherbicide, it helps break resistance before the battle gets to your field. Help stop HPPD-resistant weeds with Verdict Herbicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Well, Delaney, as we wrap up here, my last little headline here alludes a little bit into your markets report. Wheat futures fell overnight trading as we reported that the crop conditions improved week to week. The 30 percentage of winter wheat now rated good to excellent is up from the 28%, according to the U.S. Department of Ag, still well below that 45% average of good to excellent. Now, with the crop progress continuing to move, but the biggest thing that hit this and helped improve conditions, Delaney, was the rainfall that fell over the weekend. I know we had 2.1 inches here in central Iowa, but when you look at parts of the western Midwest, Delta, and Pacific Northwest, they had a substantial amount of ability or availability of water replenished back into the soil profile. However, we're looking forward to snow forecast for the northern plains. It may be a little bit too late to cause any help right now, but it could prevent could provide more stress on livestock. We don't need any blizzard conditions. Delaney, there's been a couple of local reports of Wyoming cattle looking for Iowa corn stalks or central portion of the United States corn stalks to winter on because they are short on hay and feed supplies. So it'll be interesting to continue to watch these weather patterns. But that's the news I have for today. I have just one final piece of news here, Tanner, before we hop into markets, and that is Seaboard Foods has bought hog farm inventory for the mash offs from for $58 million. During the first nine months of 2022, Seaboard has invested about $223 million in their pork segments for a recovery project that they have been working on and a replacement breeding herd project that they have been working on. And to do so, they've decided to acquire a segment of the Mashoff's business. Like I said, they're for $58 million. This was just disclosed on Tuesday of last week by the Securities and Exchange Commission filing. And Seaboard says these additional farms will increase their sow base resulting in less reliance on third-party hog suppliers, Tanner. Yeah, I had seen that headline as well. That was a pretty big move and an interesting move for a corporation as such. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out or if you hear of additional purchases and sales coming down the pipeline. Absolutely, Tanner. But like I said, there might be a good opportunity to make some 2023 sales if we do start to see things shore up around that $4.30 mark in the corn markets. However, today we're still setting closer to $7. In the overnight here, we will see new crop corn open two and a half cents lower at 6.73 and a half. January soybeans will open five and a half cents lower at 14.44 and three quarters. In the hard red December winter wheat contract, down a quarter of a cent in the overnight to open at 9.57. And the livestock markets tanner yesterday certainly had a lot of excitement across the board and will open this morning at 153.05 in the December live cattle contract. Open at 179.92.5 in the January feeder cattle contract and 87.05 in the December lean hog contract after their limit up move yesterday, Tanner. But today, Tanner, fill us in on who we are talking to. Uh, yes, this was a very interesting conversation for our Tech Tuesday. Seth Murray uh, from Texas A&M University. We'll let you get into that conversation to learn more about the advancements in technology related to agriculture. 
Listeners, excited for this Tech Tuesday interview today with Dr. Seth Murray, professor at Texas A&M AgriLife Research, uh, Eugene Butler Endowed Chair, President-Elect of the Crop Science Society of America, and corn breeder. So Dr. Murray, with all these different titles and descriptions, give us a little bit of your background and the knowledge that you have. Sure. So um, happy to be with you. My my background is uh, is really uh, what we call molecular quantitative genetics, which I know is complicated, but um, the best way to explain it is is finding genes for things that uh, we care about for crop improvement. Um, and then about five years ago, I started a, a project with some ag engineers and some aerospace engineers on using drones or UAVs for improving agriculture. Um, primarily to help plant breeding in my case, but agriculture in general. And that really kicked off a whole new research area in what we call phenomics. Um, so if you're familiar with genomics and trying to understand all the features of the genome, not just one gene, but all the genome, uh, phenomics is like trying to understand all the features of the phenome, all the physical expression of the plant under every condition and every possible uh, trait you can imagine and even more beyond that. Um, to try and figure out what's really going on with with plants and how we can improve them. Well, I'm glad that you explained that to our listeners because Cassidy and I, pre-conversation, she had to explain to me the difference. But this, the conversation we're having today is based off of a press release that came out at the end of October for the brand new greenhouse, which features state-of-the-art technology for ag research. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and where it's at? Sure. It's uh, yeah, it's super cool. Um, so the greenhouse is is really a. I mean, I've, I've not seen a greenhouse like this in the United States. It's equivalent to some of the high tech European uh, style greenhouses. Uh, and the the main feature it has is this robotic arm. Uh, there's two of them actually in two different bays, and then connected to that is a multi spectral camera. Uh, and what the multi spectral camera does is collects images just like any other camera. Um, plus, it kept, collects some images uh, in the, the near-infrared where uh, plants really show signs of things like stress or, you know, healthy growth. Um, and so that robotic arm is constantly taking pictures and moving around those plants. So unlike a, a field experiment where we're getting, you know, sort of a, a cursory view maybe once every three or four days of these plants, um, this really allows people to dive in deep and look at the, the biology of the plants, uh, compare plants directly um, on a minute-by-minute basis or an hour-by-hour basis to see how the plants are responding uh, to the environment in real time. Um, does, does that help? <laughs> yes, definitely. It sounds a little over my head, but also really exciting for this industry, especially for crop science in particular. And I know it has the Texas A&M label, but I have to assume being from that area and attending Sam Houston State just down the road, that this research is pretty wide reaching outside of the university as well, correct? Yeah, the, I mean, I think the hope is that we'll have users from uh, not only all over the state or all over the country, but all over the world. Um, just because it's it's a little unique in the way that the greenhouse is set up and the type of data it can collect. So if it if it helps, I'll give you a, a practical example and then and then maybe walk you through a couple of the you know the directions that we're taking the science. 
Um, so a practical example is if you think about a, a GMO crop, um, you know, genetically modified crop, one of the big concerns people have is what they call substantial equivalency. So if I genetically modify a crop um, or somebody does, uh, how do we prove that it's safe, right? How do we prove it's the same thing um, that, you know, people are used to uh, consuming? And so what this greenhouse theoretically can allow us to do is put a, a GMO crop next to a non-GMO crop um, where they'd be identical except for that transgene, that one, one or a few genes, and monitor that plant in real time to see, like, at every step of growth, is the plant the same? And under every condition, let's say drought stress or waterlogged conditions, and if it's showing the same uh, phenotypic expression, if it's showing the same trait measurements um, at all times, then you can feel pretty safe that the plant is equivalent in all other, you know, functions. So that's one innovative way that we might be able to use this. Um, if, if I can go on a little bit further, I'll tell you that the, the three ways that we're looking at, at using this primarily in science, the first one is to automate traits that we always have measured. So things like plant height. So now we can automate that and free up, you know, our, our graduate students to do more intellectual work. So that's exciting. The second thing is discovering new traits. So uh, vegetation indices, you know, like the greenness of the plant, the health of the plant. We can't afford to go into the field and measure every plant like that. Um, but now with a robot, you know, it can measure every plant and we can collect these new measures, which will unlock biology. And then the coolest feature, I think, is uh, this idea of phenomics, uh, uh, which basically means, you know, measuring every possible phenotype. So things nobody's ever considered. So not just plant height or flowering time or the leaf branching, um, but things like the texture of the plant, things that only a computer can understand. And by doing that, we're going to be able to understand, uh, you know, life and death processes of the plant and be able to, you know, select for things in the field and breed for things uh, that are going to really enhance plant health under varied conditions. So that's what I'm most excited about is unlocking these new uh, biologic, biological features that we've never been able to measure before. I think the fun part about this is the practicalness of robots and the efficiencies that they provide is now being brought into science at a whole nother level. We've talked to many manufacturers that state that the robots don't put employees out of jobs. They put employees in jobs of higher value. And it sounds like what you just described with the grad students is providing that opportunity that instead of the hours and time in observation, they can now put that those hours and time while they're in that role into pushing science even further forward. Do I understand that correctly? Man, you nailed that. Yep, absolutely. Um, I mean, I will, I will stretch that to say a little bit, you know, the, Agriculture continues to shrink, shrink, if we're being honest. I mean, I teach a class on the history of American agriculture, and we can look back to the 40s and 50s and see, you know, half the U.S. labor force uh, involved in some aspect of agriculture. We're now at, what, 1% of people farm and 2% of people are involved in agriculture in some type of way. Um, so we're used to doing more with less. Uh, so that is the other thing that, that's sort of enabling. So higher quality jobs, uh, but also just expecting there be fewer, being fewer people to be in our in our labor force of agricultural research. So are there going to be certain crops that you'll be focusing on or is the possibility endless as the commodity list is endless? Well, I think the possibility list is uh, is endless. Uh, some crops are going to, you know, 
be much more amenable to being studied in the greenhouse. So the greenhouse, the other thing that's unique about this greenhouse is it was built so that uh, bioenergy sorghum and sugarcane can be grown in there. Uh, tree crops could be grown in there if, if need be, um, but, but it's still a greenhouse, you know, and so things have to fit in pots. And if you're trying to grow pecan trees, for instance, or coffee trees, uh, it may not work so well to be relevant to a farmer uh, in a pot. Uh, but certainly things like um, like cotton, like sorghum, like wheat, like corn, uh, we can get some some really interesting, relevant information from. So, Dr. Murray, from the website that I accessed through the article about this new greenhouse, I saw that researchers are able to request space in the greenhouse for studies. How does that process work and how do they go about that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, like. Like many things in the university now, you know, with a decreasing uh, uh, tax base for, you know, public sector research, uh, the public sector invested in the facility. But then to actually use the facility, most of that's going to be funded by grants, whether that's from a commodity organization or the federal government or a state government or a company. Uh, we, we think companies will probably be pretty large users of, of this. Um, so anybody can request space. Uh, since it is so new and people haven't had a chance to write grants to put this into their research, uh, there's actually a lot of opportunity right now. We think that, that bo- that's probably going to become a bottleneck in a year or two. Um, but, yeah, there's an online form. People can request space. Uh, there's a, a faculty group that reviews all the applications. And I think mostly we're enthused about anybody who wants to try something new and push the frontiers of knowledge and science and improving agriculture. Well, Dr. Murray, we appreciate the time that you've spent with us here just to tease our listeners to go out and learn more about it. If they want to learn more about the project and the university and the progress you guys are making, what's the best way for them to look that up? Well, that's a good question. Um, There is a publicly facing website, uh, like I mentioned right now. Um, I think the most exciting stuff for a general audience is going to come once we have some discoveries from it. Um, I I really am always hesitant to overhype anything. Uh, until we see what comes out of it. I know there's, you know, we love to overhype things in agriculture uh, about new products coming down the line. Um, I'm I'm super excited about this, but I do think it's going to take a little while before those big discoveries come out of it. Uh, and so those are the things that I'm going to be looking forward to sharing with your listeners in, you know, a year, two years, three years down the road. Um, but hopefully they can help support, you know, research in their area to use this and answer the questions that they're interested in. You know, drought's a Droughts one that is particularly on everybody's mind or heat tolerance. Um, and this greenhouse is perfect for that type of research. Hey, that makes a lot of sense. We, we appreciate you spending the time with us today and sharing with our listeners what you can. And we will keep you on our list to stay in contact with as you guys start to get results in. So thanks again. That's awesome. And thanks for all you do and, and communicating it and your interest. Well, there you go, Delaney. What a cool science to have here in the U.S. And it looks like it should have a lot of upward potential. Obviously, need to get to the first uses in place. But the fact that it could benefit almost every crop is a huge plus. Yeah, it's certainly super interesting to hear things like that coming down the pipeline, Tanner. And just amazed at such high-level science that's going on that I certainly can't even begin to comprehend. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun to ask questions because I know very little. 
And I hope our listeners get curious and go to look up more of the details themselves. But for today, may the odds be ever in our listeners' favor if you're holding a Powerball ticket. But until (laughs) tomorrow, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let them go? Let's let them go. 